The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of January 7th, 2019. On this week's show, our colleague Nick Green will join us to discuss the NFL's wildcard weekend, wherein Ravens quarterback Lamar Jackson was pretty, pretty bad, and Bears kicker Cody Parkey doinked a football off an upright again. Jonathan Charks of The Ringer will also be here to talk about the offensive wizardry of the Houston Rockets' James Harden. And man in blazer Roger Bennett will tell us what we need to know about the $73 million deal to bring American soccer star Christian Pulisic to Chelsea of the Premier League. Joining me in our Washington, D.C. studio is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, heroically fighting through throat soreness. The first show of the new year. Hello, Stefan. You are too, Josh. Oh, you're yeah. You're just not saying it. You're just not mentioning You're just going out there and doing your job. I sound a little better than you, I must yeah. say. Yeah. So uh, I feel good about that. Feels That's great. <laughs> Congratulations are in order, Josh. Your book, your new book, The Queen, is available for pre-order. It is. Tell us a little more about how you can pre-order your new book, The Queen, which is out in May. Just go on the internet and Google it. <laughs> Then click click the thing. It's the queen. Has nothing to do with pre-order sports. Pre-order it now. So I wouldn't dare talk about it on this show, but do pre-order it. Um, I should also say we're not going to talk about the college football title game between Alabama and Clemson. As a wise man once said, when you have a podcast that comes out on Mondays, you have a podcast that comes out on Mondays. So we are unable to talk about that uh, that contest, but enjoy watching it. I, I wish you well in your in your TV experience. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. The Colts, Cowboys, Chargers, and Eagles were the winners on the NFL's wildcard weekend, with the latter two emerging victorious in ways that suit themselves better to conversation in the podcast chat show format. We'll get to Ravens, Chargers in a bit. But first, the Philadelphia Eagles, who you might remember, won the Super Bowl last year by beating America's team, the New England Patriots, had to win their last three games this season to make the playoffs. And they had to get some help from the Chicago Bears, who beat the Vikings in their last regular season game to knock Minnesota out and get Philadelphia in. So more than anything else, let's consider the Eagles' 16-15 to win over the Bears, an act of extreme rudeness. Joining us now is Slate writer and Chicago native Nick Green, who sent kicker Cody Parkey a cookie bouquet after he doinked the potentially game-winning field goal off the upright last night. That was very nice of you, Nick. Well, anything I can do to help. I uh, I think we're all struggling through this together. Um, you went to dinner last night, Nick, if I can just go a little bit behind the scenes. You went, <laughs> you went to dinner last night thinking that Parkey was solely at fault for this crime against uh, the Wendy City. He yanked it. He doinked it. It was the sixth time he hit the upright this year. But then later in the evening, slow motion video emerged that maybe showed uh, an Eagles defensive lineman, Trayvon Hester, 
tipping it at the line. Uh, your thoughts? Well, I'll tell you something. I've watched that slow motion <laughs> video a couple times. A um, hundred, probably. Yeah. No, because it's you know it's fun. It's a fun kind of fun video to watch. Um, I I don't see that much contact, and this might be because of doesn't crazy take much. Person. Does not take much. Let me tell you, does someone not, who has kicked the football does it not look as if he's tipping it more towards inside the upright? So it would have been. <laughs> A worse miss? No, no, I, no, my, Nick. It affected the trajectory of the ball. That's are you that sure? Matters. Are you sure that it? Oh, I'm not sure. It? I think the the most conclusive evidence is that Hester tweeted out, or somebody tweeted out a picture of Hester's left hand. Yeah. So <laughs> wait, like the, just the fact sh- that he has a hand. Well, he has a hand, <laughs> and it was worth taking a photo of, indicating that Hester agreed that he. Well, he said that he he did say that he yeah, tipped it. He tipped it. But that's the, like that's like Michael Cohen taking a picture of his passport cover <laughs> to say that he has a bit of prog. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if he did tip it, it obviously is going to affect the trajectory of the kick. I think we can argue that the video was totally not definitive to me, no and way. everybody was tweeting. I was like, clearly, he tipped the ball <laughs> based it, on it, this it, this video. It, if he didn't tip the ball, it would have hit both uprights in the crossbar. So. You yeah. know, it was a very important tip just to hit one upright instead. Okay, uh, doing my putting my kicker analysis hat on or helmet. Um, it looked to me like Parky rushed it. Whenever you pull a ball to the left, if you're a right footed kicker, it indicates that you're swinging through it too soon. Given that you're wearing your kicker analysis hat, what does that tell us about his feelings about his mother? The fact that he, he rushed it in that moment. Those are buried deep. Parky's <laughs> going to need a lot of help this offseason. And yeah. that may be one of the questions he needs to answer. But he shouldn't have been. I'm sorry. I love kickers. I was sat like paralyzed on my couch for 10 minutes <laughs> after the miss because I felt so badly for him. I couldn't tweet. I couldn't even look I at Twitter. I couldn't tweet. It was, it was, <laughs> it was tragic. Um, but the dude missed 10 kicks this season. He made just yeah. 76% of his field goals, doinking those four uprights in one game. I mean, the Bears won that game, but still. Um, it I was am- weird that they didn't. Cut him. It was really weird that they didn't well, cut him. They may have has, wanted to consider his mental state if a playoff game came down <laughs> to a last second kick in evaluating whether they should have kept him after his terrific run of of, of awful happenings. His contract is a nine million dollars guarantee. Yeah. It's a four year, fifteen million dollar contract, which I um for all the people saying that Ryan Pace, the Bears GM, who should win uh, GM of the Year, the people who are saying he should win GM of the Year, uh, giving a relatively unproven kicker a four-year, $15 million contract, I think, might uh, postpone the uh, delivery of that award uh, yeah. if I were uh, in charge of that, which uh, I'm not. But I, one thing that Parky said is that he was playing the wind Um so I don't know if that affects whether or not it looked like he was rushing it. But if you watch the video, uh, which, again, I have a couple times, <laughs> you notice the uh, flags on top of the uprights. Uh, they're moving left to right. And right when the ball's in the middle of the air, they just kind of go limp. Ooh. So if there was, if the gust would have persisted just one second longer, uh, well, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> um, after Parkey's really bad game, which was against the Lions in November, they had him practice in Soldier Field rather than at the practice facility, yeah. yes. which is really weird. Um, traffic helicopters, the Chicago Tribune reported, captured his first practice visit 
to Soldier Field, yeah. not to put any pressure on him. Bears kickers have been terrible in Soldier, Soldier Field, um, 73% since the start of 2016. Visiting kickers have hit like 94% of their field goals in Soldier Field. So that's weird. there's something weird about Well, the important thing is what happened at the start of 2016 is that that's after the Bears got rid of Robbie Gold. The, right. I think the most accurate kicker in NFL history, or at least in the top three. He's one of uh, them. Yeah, it was cruel on the 49ers, and they got rid of him because they didn't want to pay the uh, $250,000 it would have kept to, I guess, keep him on the um, squad. So uh, uh, I don't know if that number is exact um, because I'm, I've spent all morning looking at uh, field goal kicking percentage instead of uh, contract numbers. But uh, Robbie Gold is second to Justin Tucker. Yes. Okay, good. Great. That's great to hear. Um, (laughs) But the Bears have this kind of, uh, you know, poor man's curse of the Bambino uh, situation going on. Uh, Last year, the last game of the season, uh, the 49ers beat the Bears 15 to, I think, 12. And it was because all the 49ers points came directly from Robbie Gold in Soldier Field. I'm trying Um, to think how poor a man would have to be for it to to compare Robbie Gold to Babe Ruth. I think you might have to like be. <laughs> I think a cardboard box. I think you might. What's like you might have to be living in one of those like um, uh, maybe like those CD cases that are really impossible to to open. Like maybe that that would be inappropriate. Hitting home runs is essentially just a version of kicking field goals. I mean, Stefan would agree with you. I don't know if anyone else would. Um, Justin Tucker missed a field goal for for the Ravens as well on uh, yes on Sunday. So nothing's guaranteed. In life, except the Bears for the Bears kickers points missing. that weren't scored by Cody Parkey, by the way. He did make three field goals. And Trubisky played okay. He played pretty well. He drove it, them. He he went on that last drive at the end. But um, his fourth quarter was great. I think he was 112 yards and one touchdown, seven for ten. Um he was great in the fourth quarter. It was kind of a trend throughout the playoffs this weekend. Um, was that coaches seemed too conservative through the first three quarters with Russell Wilson, Trubisky, and Lamar Jackson. And then when the quarterbacks were finally allowed to start kind of playing catch up and tossing the ball around, they they played really well at the end. So uh, for all the offensive explosion everyone likes to talk about this year, I think coaches might have been a little too conservative in the first weekend of the playoffs. Let's talk about the Eagles quarterback, Nick Foles, because there are two ways of looking at this game uh way number one nick falls uh the horseshoe up his butt uh continues to be up his butt um led the eagles to the super bowl last year after coming on as uh the backup to carson wentz this year he comes in leads them into the playoffs leads them to this first victory he had um the game-winning drive at the end throwing a touchdown pass to golden tate at the end which was and he was great on that last drive there's no denying down on fourth down. Um, the other way of looking at it was that Nick Foles didn't play very well in this game. He had a subpar passer rating. Um, and to say that this somehow proves that um, Foles is the guy and that the Eagles will be making a mistake if they let him go after this season is, is absurd. Chicago has a pretty good defense. Chicago has a pretty good defense, I think, is the counter argument. And so I'm, and, le- I'm leaning a little bit more towards like being pro Foles. Uh, if you remember la- last playoffs he started pretty poorly the atlanta game um nothing was going right it it took a deflected ball deflected pass off a i think defender's heel to set up a a field goal in the in the first half that kind of ended up being um the the 
the difference there. And he got stronger as the, the playoffs continued. Um, so I have no doubt in my mind that uh, come the Super Bowl, he will be throwing 15 touchdowns, no interceptions, and defeating the New England Patriots by 100 points. Uh, I mean, he did benefit from a bunch of defensive penalties in this game, as I'm sure Nick remembers. I mean, for the <laughs> for the Eagles to keep him, something like $20 million uh, Wentz is still on a rookie deal. The economics of it makes zero sense for him to stick around. And yet you have people like Mike Florio on Twitter after the game saying that if Foles wins next week, there's no way that the Eagles can let this guy go. They have to keep him and, and trade Carson Wentz. They could certainly get a lot in return for Carson Wentz, who's gotten injured his uh, the, la- the last two years. But I don't know, man. Uh, and we saw a little bit of this in the in the Ravens uh, game where John Harbaugh made the decision very consciously that even when Lamar Jackson was looking like the worst quarterback that's ever played football, Peter that he was going to that he was going to stick with him and not put Joe Flacco in the game. And then after the game said, Joe Flacco is gone and Lamar Jackson is our guy. Stefan, thoughts? Yeah, Lamar Jackson was terrible. He was also 21 and remains 21, the youngest quarterback ever to start a playoff game, I believe. Um, the first what, Whether he was 21 or 11 or 41, he was still terrible. He was terrible in the third quarter. In Midway through the fourth quarter, he was 3 for 10 with 25 yards and an interception and a quarterback rating of zero. Don't forget two fumbles. And two fumbles. Yeah, he was not good. He kind of redeemed himself toward the end and then fumbled on the last play of the game or was strip sacked on the on the last play of the game. He, do you put in I mean the 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 weird thing to me is that all of Lamar Jackson's comments after the game or not all of them but some of them were that I played badly. I was having a bad day. I didn't feel like I was there. And it's okay to replace athletes who are not doing well in a sporting event. Um, if Lamar Jackson was having a bad day and was telling people on the sidelines that, look, I suck today, maybe you don't want he to probably play wasn't saying Lamar that. Jackson. He probably <laughs> wasn't saying that on the sidelines, but he did say it after the game. It was pretty obvious to everyone that he was sucking. So I don't quite understand why it would have been such a a, a, a big deal if Flacco had come in. The guy sucked. I mean, it, was, it made it easier for everyone going into the offseason that Jackson had a good fourth quarter, right? Yes. Nick? Yes, totally. And yeah, if, if Flacco would have come in at halftime, you're exactly right. All the conversation would have been, gosh, Lamar Jackson is not a real NFL quarterback. Their offense is gimmicky. Uh, what are they going to do? But he played well enough there in that fourth quarter to at least kind of uh, put those doubts to rest. Um, but going back to, to, to Foles, um, Foles is very different than Flacco because Foles is doing this right now, whereas Flacco's kind of moment of glory is clearly past. Um, and you say it's a matter of economics, uh, as if the constraints of economic theory uh, affect or apply to Nick Foles. He's <laughs> magic and fairy dust. Uh, I think the Eagles have to find a way to make it work. If that means uh, uh, having Carson Wentz, um, I don't know, uh, uh, send him to Jacksonville or something. I think you got to do it. Got to keep Foles. <laughs> That's right, my hot Nick. take. All right, Nick. All right, Nick. You're 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 clearly in a lot of pain. Um, <laughs> you're not thinking straight after last night, and that's understandable. So I buy plane tickets under Carson Wentz's name to Jacksonville. I'm thinking perfectly clearly. <laughs> the really fascinating thing about the Ravens game was that John Harbaugh. There were a lot of questions throughout the season about whether he was going to be fired. He won the Super Bowl, but 
Um, they haven't been doing as well the past few years, <laughs> largely because of Joe Flacco sucking. But um, he recently got a contract extension. And this is a very, very rare case of a coach engaging in long-term thinking where, hmm. and he said it after the game, Lamar Jackson is our guy. Joe Flacco is going to be gone. He, We love Joe. He was great for us. He's going to do great somewhere else, but he's 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 going to be in Jacksonville or <laughs> wherever with Carson Wentz and they'll they'll have fun together. But Harbaugh, even with Jackson, if he had played as horribly as he had played the whole game, he was still going to leave him in because he didn't want to show a lack of confidence in him. He wanted to, I think, send a signal that you're our guy through thick and thin. And that's fascinating to me. That's a rare Yeah, NFL coaches thing. don't do that because they're so concerned about their, you know, or at least we assume that they're so concerned about losing their own jobs that they don't make any decisions that can be perceived as risky or that open themselves to criticism after the fact. I wonder if the booing might have it could have gone it could have gone either way because Jackson was getting booed at home. It was pissing off his teammates, Fairweather fans, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I wonder if Harbaugh might have maybe didn't want to be seen as like, all right, the fans are turning on him, and so I'm going to take him out of the game. Yeah, I, w- I wonder if that could have been a factor. But Nick, if, if, if Jackson had ended with a zero passer rating, what would people be saying about Harbaugh in Baltimore right now? Well, I don't think it would matter what they would say because he just signed that contract extension. So he had the kind of luxury, I guess, um, of that security. Uh, I, I do wonder also the fact that the Ravens are a, a pretty consistently um, successful franchise in this century, really, um, that they can or Harbaugh can kind of play the long game a little bit more. All the sort of Lamar Jackson takes will pretty much be unfair until after next season when he has a full training camp to kind of learn a fuller offense and have the, the Ravens kind of tailor a more complex offense to his skills rather than this sort of run, 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 whatever's going to sneak us into the playoffs uh, strategy they had in the last you know half of the season or so. Um, so I think you really have to wait until next season to see how he does. But he was, he was great at Louisville. He's a Heisman Trophy winner. Uh, he's pretty awesome. All for- Heisman Trophy winning quarterbacks do well in the NFL. We know that. It's a, it's a fact. Go yeah, ahead. well, that's why Johnny Manziel is about to uh, – lead the Browns to the Super Bowl. That's uh <laughs> in in my uh private dimension that I currently live in where Cody Parkey hits all his field goals. <laughs> it's beautiful and sunny here. Uh did I get uh, off track there? Sorry. No, no, no. And it brings <laughs> us back, I think, and I wanna since we started with kicking, I want to end with kicking. It is my prerogative. Uh in the Seattle game, Sebastian Janikowski, who is like sixty three and weighs about 295 pounds now, uh, pulled something in, in one of his big legs, looked like a hamstring, and was out for the rest of the game. The, the, the kicking duties were then to be taken over by Michael Dixon, their punter, their all-world punter who has been credited with revolution the game. Australian, did go to the University of Texas. But, but Dixon was incapable of kicking a placed ball off the ground. He couldn't kick a field goal or an extra point had he been asked to do so. Um, Pete Carroll said that during the week he was practicing drop kicks. But it it beggars belief that a team with a 
year-old, 295-pound kicker who's prone to injury at this point wouldn't be prepared for a situation like this where they may have to have somebody else kick off, kick an extra point, or kick a field goal. That dude, Dixon, he looked so bad trying to take some practice kicks at halftime. It was astounding. So well, there was, it, it was extremely bizarre that because he couldn't get that drop kicked onside kick, it was looked like a squib kick. It was terrible. But the this second the game last of the minute of the game when they had a chance. Yes, um, and, they and in the onside kick. in the second game of the season against the Bears, uh, Seattle uh, was in a similar situation, and Dixon had a um, onside drop kick that was great. Right. The Bears recovered it, but it was it was wonderful. So I have no idea. Was it a is there a, a, a different word for that in uh, kind of Aussie English that got mistranslated uh, in the heat of the, the playoff uh, atmosphere? I'm, it was, not, even, it was I'm bizarre. not even griping with the onside kick at the end of the game because that's it's a really high risk, difficult maneuver. I mean, you're probably better off just putting the ball on the ground and blasting it at some dude 10 yards away and hoping it ricochets. Um, but to me, it was just, it's unconscionable that Seattle didn't have a plan for what happens I love, if love, Janikowski love. gets hurt. <laughs> I love, 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 love that this is the thing. And it, I'm not even saying that you're wrong, but you're, the thing I you're care about. so, no, but you're so critical when the traditional football analysts are like, you got to make that play. You got to make that catch in the NFL. This is the National Football League. You, if you don't make that catch, you're on the street next week, son. And this is like the thing. We're like, it's unconscionable. That they weren't prepared. Come on. NFL teams prepare for every damn thing. But, but Sebastian if, Janikowski getting hurt should have been one that they had a contingency plan for. What if Seattle Teach had to do that to kick an extra point? What if Seattle had two kickers a backup kicker as you know per your request uh and then they couldn't have i don't know a backup left guard or something and then the no, left guard went out during the middle I'm of the suggesting, game Nick, i'm <laughs> suggesting that kickers have a lot of downtime in practice <laughs> michael dixon should have been able to learn how to kick a field goal busy throw too busy throwing boomerangs nick green writes for slate dreams of cody parkey thank you nick hey thanks guys gonna go watch that replay right now before we get to our conversation with Jonathan Charks about James Harden, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Nick Green will be back with us and we'll be chatting about Antonio Brown, the very talented wide receiver for the Steelers, whose team is pondering whether to trade him after he went a little bit AWOL before their regular season finale. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Houston guard James Harden's run of scoring 40 points in five straight games ended on Saturday night in Portland when he scored a mere 38 in the Rockets' 110-101 loss. It would make sense if Harden was a little bit run down, given that he'd led his team to a 135-134 road win in overtime against the Warriors two nights before. He scored 44. He hit the game-winning three in the final second of that game. As Jonathan Charks wrote in The Ringer last week, it's not just that the reigning MVP is playing the best 
offensive basketball of his career. It's that Harden is doing something we have never seen before in the NBA. Joining us now is Jonathan Charks. Welcome to the podcast, sir. How are you guys doing? Doing very well. Um, John, I'll let you pick up from that intro. The headline of your piece was James Harden is pushing the limits of basketball. How exactly is he doing that? Well, for the last few years with the Rockets, Harden has really been one of the best players in the league. And ever since Chris Paul got hurt about two weeks ago now, he's really taken what he's done as taken it one step further. So Harden right now is leading the leading it's NBA, in the NBA history. He's taking the most threes per game at 12. And over the last six games, I believe he's at like 17 a game. So he's just like shattering the record for the number of threes a player is taking in one game. Yeah, so in your piece in The Ringer, which came out before that Warriors game, you said there had been only 48 games in NBA history in which a player has attempted at least 17 threes, and Harden had done it in three of his previous five games. Since then, he's done it multiple uh, uh, additional times. He had 23 three-point attempts against the Warriors in that overtime win, and then he had another 17 against Portland. How much of this is just Paul being out and Harden um, just assuming more of the burden of the team's offense. How much of it is conscious strategy where the Rockets, who always have seemed more aware than other NBA teams that three is worth more than two, how much of uh, is is it a conscious strategy on the part of the team that Harden's our best player, let's just have him shoot as much as possible? I mean, I think it's a little of, little of both. I, I imagine when Paul comes back at some point, Harden will take a little bit of a step back offensively. But I think the bigger point of like the value of the three-point shot, it's only going to keep rising with time. And what really separates Harden from any really any player before him is his ability to shoot threes off the dribble. So it used to be like you know, 10, 15 years ago in the NBA, guys like Reggie Miller, they'd run around screens, catch passes, and shoot threes. Harden just cuts out the middle man. He says, I can shoot whenever I want. And he takes shots stepping backwards. So there's really no way to defend that three-point shot because he's dribbling backwards through two or three feet. Sometimes maybe he's traveling, who knows, and just shooting those shots. And- who could possibly say? <laughs> it's so hard to tell. I mean, either way, Harden is just kind of blurring the lines. Like the shot Harden takes, even like five years ago, I mean, no one would even take those shots. But because he's making them at a high enough rate, it just puts the defense in an impossible position because how can you how can you prevent someone taking a step back three pointer? What's really interesting to me is how we had come to um, appreciate Stephen Curry of the Warriors as this crazy three point phenomenon, right? Redefining the game, launching these thirty five foot threes, and here we are, like two or three years later, somebody else is redefining what is possible beyond the three-point line in the NBA. And Curry suddenly kind of looks like a normal three-point shooter compared to Harden in terms of the way I wouldn't go he that receives far, bro. the ball. I'm not going to go that far. <laughs> in terms of the way he receives the ball and, and, and gets his threes off. Yeah, I mean, part of it is just the level of talent on his team. Like, So Curry's playing with you know Clay Thompson, Kevin Durant, Draymond Green, all these all-stars. And he has to be kind of more part of a team concept, whereas Harden's out on the, almost by himself with Paul out. And he's just and he's just doing everything for his team. And the funny thing is, Harden has never been as accurate a shooter as Curry. But what like the Rockets have realized is it almost doesn't matter. Just taking the threes is valuable. It doesn't even matter how often they go in. 
And Harden, as you write in your piece, is a great passer. Like the way that we've been having this conversation so far, we're making it sound as if Harden is selfish, which I think is not true. He yeah. is great at finding his teammates, particularly Clint Capella. Um, they have an amazing two-man game. And as you write, John Harden combines um, three-point shooting, free-throw shooting, and assists at rates that we've never seen before in right. the NBA. Right. I think what Harden is not selfish, but he is self-aware, right? He, he's a, he, he understands that he now has the ability to do this. And so he is able to create threes. You know, what did you write? That, uh, uh, that only 13% of his threes at the time you wrote the piece were assisted compared to like 67% for Curry. So Harden recognizes that he has not only the opportunity, but the ability to change the way he is shooting. Yeah. As you were saying, it all works in concert. So I, I think what I was, when I was looking at it, it's like really the two easiest ways for an NBA player to make his teammates better. He can either create shots for them, like pass them the ball, they get an open shot, or he creates space for them because Harden is shooting so many threes, the defense has to come out on him. And like, if you put two guys on Harden, he can make the next pass. And so it's kind of a pick your poison thing. And really, he's like a great point guard and a great shooting guard. And like this one super, super sized, incredible player. And if you have Harden, it seems like a player like Harden, pretty much almost anyone else around him is going to play a lot better. The thing that I find so amazing about Harden statistically is that if you look at his shooting percentage, not his true shooting percentage accounting for the fact that he shoots so many threes, but just pure straight up um, you know, uh, makes divided by attempts. He's basically the exact same as Carmelo Anthony. And Carmelo Anthony is just considered trash by like the modern NBA fans. Like that guy's shot selection is so garbage. He can't shoot. And Harden, as you said, John, it's not like Harden's a great shooter. It's just that he knows where to shoot from. And this is just an example of how much, you know, depending on whether how pejorative you want to be, the three-point shot distorts the game or the three-point shot influences the game or influences how we think about it. So that Carmelo Anthony and James Harden aren't that different. And yet the perception of them is just so – they're like kind of considered like op, on the opposite poles of intelligence in terms of shot selection in the NBA. Though I will say with Carmelo, if he was getting like eight assists a game, he'd be a totally different True, true, player. true. True, true, true. I think that's fair. But just for, as a pure shooter, I do feel like there's the sense that Harden is maybe a better shooter than he is just because of the fact of, of where um, he's launching from. Yeah, it's just like the willingness and the type of shots he's taking. And of course, Carmelo was on Harden's team for like two weeks this season. <laughs> and the Rockets said, you know what? We just don't even need this around anymore. It's okay. Another thing I find interesting, Stefan, is just how much scoring totals and shooting totals are it, it's in the nba like shot selection and shot distribution it's almost like a cultural or social concept as much as a um you know purely athletic one it's like the, at a certain point you would imagine that Harden's teammates would get pissed if he if he ramped it up to like thirty three attempts a game. You need to get have the other guys um, you know involved in the game. But the fact that he scored like forty points a game, he could score fifty points or sixty points a game if he wants to. It might not be good for for the team, but it's just interesting to me finding the equilibrium between you know how much can and should Harden shoot, 
Um, because at a, at a certain point, it'll be bad for the team. If he shoots too little, it would obviously be bad, be bad well, for the but, team, but too. But isn't it also true that, look, that if the Rockets recognize that this is the only way that we can win, that they may buy in? And look, the, the modern sports and the modern NBA, it's obviously very different from when you had, like, Will Chamberlain and a recognition that, oh, he's going to score 50 points a night, and that is good for us. It's the only way that we can succeed as a team. Um, and. And Will Chamberlain did score 50 points a night in one season. Um, so with with Harden, what is the balance, John? Is it like, you know, are, are the Rockets just riding him now because they know they need to? And at some point, they're going to have to take the foot off the pedal in terms of Harden's usage rate and his shot rate because, you know, because Chris Paul's going to be back on the court and Clint Capella wants to score too. And Harden's workload could tire him out before the important part of the season begins. Well, that is the fascinating question. So if you go back and look at the playoff series against the Warriors, the Rockets have now lost them, I think, three out of the last five years. And it seems like as the series goes on, Harden's shooting numbers start to decline pretty much across the board. So I think in like the last game, because they famously in game seven last year, they went 0 for 27-3 at one point. And so can Harden's jump shooting sustain in the playoffs when teams' defenses ramp up? I think it's one of those things where for Houston, it almost for the broader picture, because Houston's roster is so limited that it doesn't, they don't really have bigger players who can create shots. I think that's really the whole in their team they've always had going back years is that all of their front court players do not create offense. They all depend on Harden. And it might make sense if they had a player like a Durant or a Draymond Green who could run the offense to distribute the distribute shots towards them. But they just don't have those players. Well, like Darryl, even Clint Capella doesn't really create shots. He just kind of catches the ball and dunks. Daryl Morey said in a post-game interview with an ESPN reporter that they're buyers, that they are going to look to do something while they can before the playoffs begin. Is that what they need to address? I've always thought they needed more uh, kind of like a, a forward who could also – that's what they wanted to do with Carmelo Anthony. They wanted a forward to create his own shot who could take pressure off Harden. The problem is Carmelo couldn't handle the rest of the responsibilities of playing defense and moving the ball. Playing basketball. But like finding, yeah, <laughs> finding a guy like that though is really hard. Like trying to find a six foot eight player who can create shots, pass the ball, shoot threes and defend. It's hard to find players like that. And the Rockets don't really have many other pieces to move to find them. I tried to turn this segment into like a praise Carmelo moment. And yet, the guy still ends up getting <laughs> trashed. I tried, Mello. I tried. It's hard to be too critical of the Rockets and their roster construction, maybe a little bit more this year than last year, but they're up 3-2 on the Warriors. And even when James, even with the consideration that James Harden gets tired as the series goes on, I think you still can't account for the fact that they missed 27 shots, yeah. in a row. And they would have won the championship if they had gone through the Warriors. And that was just, it was fluky as much as anything else. Yeah, so I think... Obviously, the Rockets would be better off if they had somebody to take the load off of Harden. They're still doing okay without that. Harden is the best offensive player of all time. Actually, you could argue for him as the best offensive player of all time, according to Daryl Morey. And I I realize that this is a t- kind of a tired conversation, but I feel like it wouldn't be true to myself if I didn't know before you ended the segment that James Harden annoys the shit out of me. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the question of... Um, He's somebody that you admire or that I admire as a fan, but I don't particularly enjoy 
watching him. So you're saying he's not likable? Is that what you're no, saying? No, I'm saying that the Elizabeth that Warren his game is annoying NBA right now. His game, his I I find drawing fa- fouls to be annoying as conceptually. Well, the step back walk is annoying, and and I do wonder, and I wanted to ask you, John. Steph Curry got called for a traveling violation on a step back three in which he took like three step backs, to be fair. I did see that. I did see that. I mean, is it is it possible that the refs will that referees will actually begin to call travels on Harden, limiting the effectiveness of his move? I do think for the most part, it is legal. I mean, I think he he always Harden's always got pushing the envelope. But I do think about 90 percent of those step backs are quote-unquote legal. So I don't think that would really change too much. But it's also kind of like with like, you know, in the NFL, the defensive back, if you always hit the receiver, eventually they just stop calling it. What do you think about the conversation about Harden's game, John? It is something that comes up a lot and just the idea that he's constantly on the free throw line and that it's just not a great watch. Is that something that you think is, is valid? And is it something that you think could spread like a plague across the NBA if other if other teams and players like the the way that this guy plays that's the way that we should all play. I do think I do agree with the whole free throw thing. It can be kind of hard to watch sometimes the way he almost seems to hunt contact to get to the line. But I think the broader point of the way he's playing in terms of volume three point shooting and assists, I do think that's kind of the way the league is moving moving towards. And I kind of get that in my piece is. I think there are several younger players who are maybe they can't be hardened, but like their goal should be to play as much like Harden as possible. Doncic, right? My guy, yeah, I'm I'm from Dallas, so I'm a big Luka Doncic guy, and I'm thinking taller Harden. That's what I want him to become. <laughs> the piece in the ringer is called uh, James Harden is pushing the limits of basketball. Maybe Luka Doncic will be pushing the limits of basketball in a few years. Uh, Jonathan Charks of the Ringer, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on, guys. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Yes, there have been Americans who have plied their trade for good teams in England's Premier League. Clint Dempsey had a nice run at Fulham and then Tottenham. Tim Howard tended goal at Manchester United for a bit. Landon Donovan made a couple of brief but respectable pit stops at Everton. Maybe Everton isn't a good or top team. Fulham, too. Uh, But no American has done what Christian Pulisic did last week. The Wonder Boy from Hershey, PA, was acquired by Chelsea. Chelsea! For $73 million, three times as much as any American before. Pulisic will finish this season at his current club, Borussia Dortmund, in Germany, and join the Blues for the 2019-20 campaign. Roger Bennett isn't waiting to join us. In fact, he already has. He's the co-host host of the Men in Blazers podcast and television show and the co-author of Encyclopedia Blazer Tanica. Welcome back to the show, Raj. Oh, it is great to be with you, Stefan and Josh. Well, as a native of Ingerland and a new citizen of the United States, yes. Premier <laughs> Premier League team allegiances aside, Roger, how does Christian Pulisic's transfer to Chelsea make you feel? 
You know, my instant reaction was the Premier League is in its 27th season. We are a nation of 315 million people. It's genuinely astonishing, but rather wonderful that finally in its 27th season, the Premier League finally has a blockbuster deal for an American player, a true blockbuster deal. $73 million is real money uh, in the game of world soccer. Pulisic instantly uh, hits the list of one of the 10 most expensive uh, incoming players in Premier League history. That's a remarkable moment. So this is a massive amount of money. It says a lot about uh, Pulisic's talent and prognostications about how he's going to be better in the future than he is today. It says a lot about the economics of world soccer at the moment, and it says a lot about the state of Chelsea. I'm curious for your thoughts on, for Chelsea specifically, whether you think that this is um, mostly an on-field move, given there have been rumors about Hazard going to Real Madrid, other players at Pulisic's position are getting older. And how much of this do you think is them making a play uh, for an American audience for marketing purposes? The real insight is to see the difference in between the newspaper headlines in Germany, uh, where he's plied his trade at Dortmund for the last couple of seasons, and the United States. Uh, The BBC uh, did a piece where they held the headlines side by side. And in America, uh, our excited journalists said things like, this is a game changer. Uh, for, for American soccer and in Germany, where they've watched a kid come through, you know, really thrive initially, had a couple of injuries and then lose his place, lose his place in the starting Dortmund lineup to an 18 year old uh, English sensation called Jado Sanchez. They can't, they can't believe uh, in Germany. They, well, their headlines were like, wow, uh, we just got $73 million for a squad player for a bench warmer. So there is an incredible difference in how he is perceived in the United States, where he truly is, you know, our great hope uh, that's come out of the American game out of Hershey, Pennsylvania and in Germany. Um, there's no doubt that that highly inflated number, which is is going to be an albatross for his uh, for the first couple of weeks of the next season in the Premier League, $73 million. That was a price that folded into it the commercial attraction Christian will have uh, in the United States, Chelsea is a club that was uh, funded in its glory years by its still owner, uh, the oligarch Roman Abramovich, who has taken a step back from just funding the club's every whim um, and is currently running a, a personal battle of his own against the British government about whether he can even set foot in England. Um, so the club has had to change over the past 12 months from a club that didn't care about the commercial and needs that other clubs were harnessed by trying to work out how to have a official beer, an official airline, an official uh, banking card in every territory. They're currently playing commercial catch-up. So you can view Pulisic and his inflated price uh, as their kind of first big step to try and win over and close the gap in terms of the Arsenals, the Manchester United, even the Tottenham Hotspurs. I think we'd be remiss when we talk about the failure in 2018 and what we're looking at for 2022 and beyond, that there has been a run of Americans, of other Americans, heading to Europe on interesting deals. Uh, Goalkeeper Zach Steffen just went to Manchester City. Tyler Adams, who was playing in Major League Soccer, is off to Leipzig. Uh, Chris Richards, a defender, joined Bayern Munich last week. Uh, Weston McKennies at Schalke. Tim oh. Weah, Paris Saint-Germain. Um, 
Graham Ruthven, yeah, Josh Sargent is playing in the Bundesliga as well and scoring goals. Uh, Graham Ruthven wrote in The Guardian, if American soccer has a youth problem, then it is doing a good job of masking it. These are talented players. Yeah, I mean, what you're seeing is a, uh, to some degree, a reaction to the past um, five years where the biggest players uh, in American soccer were brought back by the promise of a massive paycheck to MLS. You've seen the counter reaction to this. The young, um, talented teens in America are seeing kind of what happened to uh, the US in the qualifying for the World Cup, the dark failure, and doing the opposite of what their, their kind of the elder statesman did, where they came home. You're seeing the, the tide go out now, and these young talents like Tyler Adam, uh, the young a phenomenon uh, in MLS for the past season in New York at the Red Bulls. Uh, moving to Germany. They want to test themselves. In their mind, when you speak to them, um, they will say, we want to test ourselves um, in the hardest league with the best players uh, and sharpen our game. Uh, in you know, Americans don't travel well. We like our three-ply toilet paper. We like our convenience. We love them. You know, I became American in May. I, I, I adore America. I, mean, I am not averse to this. I, I, I revere everything that's great about this country. The Premier League, is is a is a brutal and unforgiving tabloid driven culture where successes are instant, knee reactions are knee jerk, flops are uh, are there. It's not like baseball where you have a bullpen and you can say, okay, he didn't do so good as a starter. Let's just move him into there. Um, his in it, once that season kicks off and Chelsea are a team in flux uh, where the best players may be moving on. We don't even know who will be playing alongside. There's going to be huge expectations from day one on the shoulders of Christie and Pulisic. Um, and I, I hope for the good of the game in America and everyone that loves its growth that he uh, he's able to deliver. And thinking about the marketing, obviously NBC is going to feature Chelsea more. They're going to feature Pulisic more. But by comparison to the NFL or the NBA or Major League Baseball, where you know that if – um, you know, the Patriots are featured that week. Tom Brady is going to be in the game. Um, NBC is going to schedule these games. And, you know, Pulisic might not be in the starting 11, might not even be in the 18. Do you think that that's going to be a challenge as far as selling the club and selling Pulisic that we're going to have these Chelsea matches that he where he might not even get on the field? Nah, he, that, that $73 million, he will be in the squad. Um, the, the, I have no doubt about that. I'll also say, you know, look how NBC covered Bob Bradley, who was the first ever American coach to coach in the Premier League. The, the NBC are a, uh, ha, have grown the Premier League and have grown. I'm not just saying that because I uh, work for NBC and cover NBC every team has a weak link and I am the weak link of NBC. But they, <laughs> they've, 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 they've done it. With a uh, with a with a very nuanced and quite thoughtful and un, uh, it's almost unlike the uh, the way the NFL is marketed. They, they, it's a very subtle, very intense. Rebecca Lowe, uh, who is the host of the Premier League in the United States, is a very balanced, very thoughtful, uh, incredibly. Um, Game one, Rebecca wide. Lowe says Chelsea's seventy three million dollar flop. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, no, it'll be, you know, if it was, it's funny, it's like, I remember when, uh, when Fox um, got the Champions League right, 
And they decided Gus Johnson, the great Gus Johnson, would be the commentator for football. They thought they could grow the game in America. Everyone, All the football fans will watch the Champions League final anyway. Let's take Gus Johnson, the beloved cult basketball commentator, and make him the commentator to the Champions League. And then, even, and then you know, regular sports fans will watch because it's Gus bloody Johnson. So the first game, they threw him in at the defense, having to be the Champions League final, which I remember they marketed as it's the Champions League final on Fox. Gus Johnson. He was above, he was above the line. And they then mentioned the teams that were playing, like and uh, feature starring Gus Johnson, also featuring Real Madrid and, uh, and Atletico Madrid. And the, the you know, NBC has grown, I think, uh, part of the appeal of, the, of Premier League soccer, other than the, the culture, uh, the wonder, the stars, the narrative, the kind of Star Wars cantina of characters, the just unbelievable daytime soap operas worth of, uh, it's like a telenovela. Um, you know, it is the way that NBC have, um, have thoughtfully, um, unhyperbolically, unkind of jingoistically, um, marketed the thing. So to be candid, that's the least of my worries. Roger Bennett co-hosts Men in Blazers podcast television show for NBC, co-wrote Encyclopedia Blazer Tanica. He's an American. Roger, thank you for oh. joining us. Oh, guys, it's great to be with you. And let me wish you both a full return to full health soon. Godspeed. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And now it is time for After Balls. Josh, uh, the Pulisic segment got me thinking about Americans in England. First American in England? In the Premier League, it was John Harkes. But there were Americans before Harkes in English soccer. And as far as I can determine, the first American to play in uh, the first division in England was a guy named John Kerr Jr. Uh, He went to Duke. He spent his uh, last semester of college, according to Wikipedia, as an exchange student in England, joined a club there. And uh, when was this? This was in the mid 1980s. This is recently. Recently. He was offered a deal with the Tacoma Stars of major indoor soccer, but declined to sign and then went to England and signed with Portsmouth. His claim to fame, though, according to Wikipedia, during one of his first team appearances for Portsmouth, Kerr was to make English football history. When on September 19th, 1987, while on the field of play as a replacement in a first division away fixture at Watford, he became the first substitute to be likewise substituted. Congratulations. It's quite an achievement. Uh, Great job, John Kerr Jr. Stefan, what is your John Kerr Jr.? 
Well, after we had taped our New Year's call-in show, we got a question from listener Brian Donovan asking why Americans don't like ties in their sports games. So ties were on my mind when on Saturday at a Scrabble tournament in Levittown, Pennsylvania, a player named Jeff Jacobson tied three out of seven games. To give you a sense of how nuts that is, I've played 1,426 tournament games, and I've tied four times, one every 356 games. According to the Scrabble website Cross Tables, where I found my stats, I'm on the lower end of ties. Seth Lipkin, who runs Cross Tables, told me that in the 1,693,759 tournament games recorded on the website, there have been 7,996 ties one every 212 games. The most frequent tire in Scrabble history, minimum 1,000 games, did it once every 79 games. In Scrabble, as in chess, where Magnus Carlsen and Fabiano Caruana, you'll recall, just tied 12 straight times, a tie is worth half a point toward your record, so a tie can lift you a half game in the standings, or glass half empty, it can leave you a half point below where you could have been. My only memorable tie came in round 29 of the 2012 national championship i blew a late lead against a 14 year old that is memorable who made a 30 something point z play that i anticipated but didn't block we tied 396 396 if i'd won i would have finished in the top 10 of the division maybe top five I haven't come close to doing that again. So the tie was depressing, but it was unforgettable, too. I remember two things about that tournament, a seven-game winning streak that put me in contention and the fucking tie against the 14-year-old, who, by the way, is now the fifth-ranked player in North America that knocked me out. And that's the thing about ties. They can be cruel when you feel victory was yours. They can be a relief when it wasn't. And they can be genuinely equitable when neither side really deserved to lose. Fatsis beats 14-year-old. Or to win. 29-29. In in a defensive ties, I'm getting to that, Edward McClelland wrote on Slate in 2008 that with no winner and no loser, each side has to provide its own resolution. As evidence, he cited a couple of famous football ties. The Harvard beats Yale 29-29 game in 1968. The headline on my tie would have been Fatsis loses to 14-year-old 396-396. And the 10-10 Notre Dame-Michigan State tie two years before that. Both had drama, both had backstories, both are still discussed 50 years later. A tie offers narrative options, none of which really permit tragic feelings. I actually like ties the way I like scorigami or the football being on the 50-yard line at the end of the quarter. Ties are unsatisfying yet calm, frustrating yet rational. Ties are inoffensive and anhedonic. Ties are Switzerland. And who hates Switzerland. But you say Switzerland is boring. And that's why Americans hate ties. We hate neutrality. We cannot abide in decision. We demand resolution. So there have never been ties in basketball. They've been legislated out of college football and the NHL and all but legislated out of the NFL. We allow them in soccer, but we didn't always. The old NASL staged a shootout to settle ties because it worried that they would be unsatisfying to the win or go home American fan that it was trying to convert to this foreign sport. We hate ties so much that baseball games are allowed to stretch to eternity rather than accede to a draw. But who can forget the tie in the 2002 All-Star Game? And I bet Cubs and Pirates fans remember the 1-1 tie at the end of the 2016 season that stood because the game was called for rain in the sixth inning and there was no reason to resume it because neither team was in the pennant race. Our aversion to ties is exemplified and I think has been influenced by a single phrase 
ways, a tie is like kissing your sister. Like kissing your sister, meaning something disappointing, dates to the 19th century. In relation to Tide sporting events, its first use is usually attributed to Navy football coach Eddie Erdelatz, who said it after a scoreless game against Duke in 1953. But Erdelatz seems to have stolen it from his colleague Edgar Rip Miller. Miller was one of the seven mules who blocked for the four horsemen at Notre Dame in the 1920s and then coached and worked in the Navy Athletic department for more than 40 years. According to a December 1946 story in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, after Navy passed up a potential tie and went for a win against Army, Miller, who was then Navy's line coach, was, quote, surrounded by bellhops in the lobby of their Philadelphia hotel, quote, one of them put this question to him. Why didn't Navy try for a field goal and get a tie out of it? Miller looked at him and replied without a smile. That's just like kissing your sister with your sweetheart standing by. That little extra etymological context certainly helps the phrase make a little bit more sense, but I still think ties are fine. (laughs) Josh, what's your John Kerr Jr.? It will perhaps not be surprising for you to learn that it's rare that I hear the siren call of conservatism, especially these days, given the guy who's president. It's Donald Trump. But there is one cultural phenomenon, Stefan, that tugs me to the right. And that, of course, is the wussification of football. I'm not talking about the rules protecting quarterbacks or the bans on hits on defenseless players. I'm all good with that, even if it is turning the sport into flag football. Side note, it is not turning the sport into flag football. I'm talking about one rule in particular, and that is college football's targeting rule, the one in which a player is automatically ejected for making forcible contact to the head or neck area and or neck area of a defenseless opponent. It's considered targeting if, among other things, a player launches himself, if there's a crouch followed by an upward and forward thrust or if a player leads with his helmet, shoulder, forearm, fist, hand, or elbow to, again, the head or neck area. The intent here is good. Cannot argue with the intent. Love the intent. Let me take you to the Fiesta Bowl, New Year's Day, Arizona. We're in the Levine living room watching in New Orleans. Uh, LSU quarterback Joe Burrow throws an interception, gets returned for a touchdown. During the return, he gets planted into the ground by uh, Central Florida defender UCF's Joey Connors, blindside hit. Connors hunted Burrow down, even though the quarterback wasn't really involved in the play. He drove his helmet into Burrow's shoulder. I don't know if you remember the Warren Sapp hit on Chad Clifton um, in the early 2000s, I think it was. These sorts of hits are notorious and have been legislated out of the NFL, just hunting down the quarterback during an interception return, hitting him from the blind side and sending him to the hospital, essentially. Burrow did continue on in the game. LSU won. Probably shouldn't have. Whatever. Um, Connors hunted Burrow down. He drove his helmet into Burrow's shoulder. Burrow got up. He had a gash on his neck. A, A neck is part of the neck area, but there was no penalty called on UCF for the hit. Uh, because Burrow was hit in the in the shoulder. In the neck area. But I guess they didn't think it was the neck area, even though he had gashed on the neck. He was hit in the shoulder. Later, LSU safety Grant Delpit was ejected from the game for targeting when, as he went to make a tackle, the UCF player raised his helmet, leaving Delpit with really no other choice due to the laws of physics on planet Earth but to hit the guy with his helmet. 
Uh, I know I am an LSU fan and untrustworthy on these matters. Watch the video and you will probably agree with me. Maybe, possibly. There really wasn't anything you could do. So what is my point? My point is not that targeting should be allowed. My point is that this targeting rule is security theater that does not actually make football safer. There is no universe in which the hit on Burrow should be legal and the hit by Delbit should be illegal. But referees are just looking at whether guys make helmet-to-helmet contact and then ejecting them from the game with no regard for whether these hits are dangerous or not. What it reminds me of is schools that mandate suspension or expulsion when kids bring knives to school and when some eight-year-old has a plastic butter knife, the principal says we have to eject you uh, because there's a zero-tolerance policy. But actually, you don't have to do that because we're humans and we can use our judgment. Do not eject Grant Delpit for bringing a butter knife to the Fiesta Bowl. But there's one There's one other uh, flourish here, Stefan. As you might know, players who get ejected from a game for targeting during the second half of that game actually get suspended for the first half of the next game, which is absurd. But what's more absurd is that I learned via the uh, college football writer Cecil Hurt on Twitter that per the NCAA rulebook, if a targeting foul occurs in the second half of the last game of the season, players with remaining eligibility shall serve the suspension during the postseason or the first game of the following season. And so the NCAA, the scourge of this terrible rule, it's not only uh, persist the next game, it crosses the sports time continuum to go into additional seasons of football, Stefan. Space time continuum. This rule is targeting my personal head and neck area. It must end. It is turning me into a wingnut. And that is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. You didn't say that a UCF player was ejected for targeting. Oh, yeah, that was a good call. Uh, The listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out. Go to Slate.com slash hangup. I actually yelled targeting at the TV during that play. It was a good call. Wasn't an LSU player ejected for throwing a punch? That was a good call, too. You can't throw a punch. Okay. You don't hear me complaining about that. Uh, Slate.com slash hangup was the URL I was in the middle of describing. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.